that I'm going to try to demand something for the Centers of Cultural Leadership. Well, he lives in California. We'll find out a bit more about that later on. But uh, thank you. Good to see everyone today. You and I are in the right place. Uh, <clears throat> the place for the Lord's people is to be in the Lord's house on the Lord's day. So you shouldn't be anywhere else. You're in the right place. I'm so glad that I can be here to preach to all of you. Um, I only met your pastor, I uh, believe, about a year or two ago. I'd known him from his writings, uh, but I have known your elder, Steve Hayhow, for, I believe it's about 20 years from now. He and his dear wife, and I think just their oldest son at the time. <clears throat> Back then, he had a lot more hair, <laughs> and I had uh, many fewer pounds, and I don't mean British currency either. <clears throat> I hope that all of you have a, a Bible in front of you today. Uh, <clears throat> I'm going to preach from the uh, Old Testament, and uh, you might want to turn. We're going to read both from Genesis chapter 6 and one verse from Hebrews 11. So please turn, if you will, to uh, Genesis chapter 6. <clears throat> um, I've never been accused of... Uh, preaching excessively long sermons, so if you don't listen carefully, I might be done, and you'll say, what was that? What just happened? So um, listen carefully, and let's pray the Holy Spirit can open up our hearts. I'm going to read the first nine verses of uh, Genesis chapter 6, and then we'll turn over to Hebrews chapter 11 for one verse. Listen to the reading of the Word of God and follow along silently, if you will. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim giants were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the heart, thoughts of his heart, was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generations. Noah walked with God. Now I'd like us to turn over, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 11. And we will read one verse, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament toward the end. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7. Verse 7. 
By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Keep your Bibles open there, maybe back to Genesis chapter 6, but with Hebrews 11 close by. Um, Recently, somebody asked me who my favorite character in the Bible is, and I had never really given it much thought. That was a really simple question, but I'd never really thought of it before. But uh, as I pondered it and considered it, I answered Noah. Well, as I did the more I was compelled to investigate why I had answered that way. This sermon is a conclusion of that investigation. So I don't ask you to join me today in uh, choosing Noah as your favorite biblical character, aside from our Lord himself, of course. But I do ask you to consider this very godly man as a paradigm or a pattern for your own life in our very depraved times. Perhaps no biblical character is more relevant for us today than this remarkable man, Noah. Noah did live in a very depraved world. The Bible says the imagination of man's heart had become increasingly wicked. It wasn't simply that his actions were wicked. The Bible says that he delighted to devise wickedness. It's almost as Proverbs says, the wicked devise evil and wickedness on their bed. Man was using his God-given imagination to establish an evil society and culture at war with God the Creator. It was, we might even say, a sort of principled wickedness. Not falling into sin, as we say, but an intentional, principled evil. Almost the entire world had succumbed to this very abject depravity. And this pervasive sin grieved God at his heart. It pained him that he had created man. Did you notice that expression in our translation? He was sorry. It means he was just grieved at his heart. Some people have the idea that God is so perfect that he cannot exhibit emotion. It's true that emotions don't overwhelm God the way that they do us, but it's wrong to say that God is without emotion. The Bible's very clear about that. God gets angry, and God rejoices, and we would say is happy in a very pure, sinless way. And God is grieved. He was so grieved that he had created man. Man was created for fellowship with this holy God, but man had just become so incessantly unholy. He had turned himself uh, into the very image-bearing creature God had hoped to avoid. In other words, man had become God-averse. Averse to his creator. But Noah was different. He and almost he alone. In this sea of depravity, Noah and his family were an island of righteousness. Literally, a literally in time, a floating island in the universal flood. 
No, the scripture says, found favor in God's eyes. He was a God-obsessed, a God-obsessed man. It wasn't easy. Matthew Henry, the well-noted commentator, says this, Probably Noah did not find favor in the eyes of men. They hated and persecuted him, because both by his life and preaching, he condemned the world. But he found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and this was honor and comfort enough. Now, for his contemporaries, Noah likely was just abhorrent. But Noah was God's favorite, favor, favorite in the end. That's all that mattered. And that's the title of the message today, Noah, God's favorite. Now, our uh, neo-Marxist culture finds almost any favoritism distasteful. It's just not fair. We're awash in egalitarianism. We can no longer award winners of children's football games for fear that the losers might feel sad or deprivileged. An elderly couple aren't permitted to hand down their hard-earned wealth to their children because it's not fair that their children get it and other people's children do not get their wealth. Homosexuals must be allowed to marry since it's not fair to deny marriage to any two consenting adults. Of course, by that logic, incestuous marriages, pedophilic marriages, are coming soon. But God, you see, is not an egalitarian, certainly not in the modern sense. The Bible overflows with examples of God's favoring some people and disfavoring others. You say, Andrew, well, that's just rather unpleasant. Well, go talk to God and see if he'll change his mind. I don't believe that he will. Noah was one of his favorites, perhaps his first favorite in human history. I'd like to explore this morning, very briefly, that favored status. Three things I'd like to ask and answer. One, why was Noah favored? Two, how have Christians understood this favoritism? And three, what does this favoritism mean for us today? First, why was Noah favored? Well, the Bible's very explicit about that. Notice three statements in the text that we read. First, Noah walked with God, verse 9. Second, in verse 22, Noah did all that God commanded him. We didn't read that specifically, but we see that also in chapter 7, verse 5, and implied in our text. Noah did all that God commanded him. And then in Hebrews 11, of course, we read, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. So, Noah walked with God. Now that expression is used in Genesis 5.24 about someone else. You probably know who it is. Is there a ring of familiarity with that expression? It's also used about his predecessor, one of his predecessors, Enoch. Enoch walked with God, and he was so close to God that God just took him to be with himself. In 1 Samuel 15.25, that expression refers to David and Nabal's men rubbing shoulders in the field. It means what we would say they really got on with each other. They got along with each other. That idiom, walked with God, means that where God was, that's where Noah wanted to be. He was talking with God all the time. He was pleasing God. He and God got along. We might say it reverently that God and Noah were mates or pals. 
Rubbing shoulders with God was his great goal in life. He treasured spending time communing with God. And that got God's attention. That made Noah God's favorite. Don't you enjoy it when someone that you love delights to spend time with you? I mean, those of you here that have grandchildren like I do, oh, they just often love to spend time with my dear wife Sharon and me, and it's just wonderful to see their eyes light up. Grandkids are God's reward for not killing your children. God delights in those who delight in him. It made God happy, we can say, that Noah wanted to be with him and talking to him and walking with him all the time. Moreover, Noah had great faith in God. Hebrews 11 says, in reverent fear he constructed an ark. That is, he moved out of reverent regard for God's command. That's likely the specific Greek meaning there. He moved out of reverent regard for God's command. He believed God, and he acted on his belief. God threatened to deluge the earth with a flood, but there were no floods at the time. If you've read the word, you know that. The soil was watered by a mist arising from the ground, not by what we call rain. So Noah didn't have any reference point. He had no reference point for God's command. Oh, you're going to send a flood. I know what that is. Oh my, that's going to be terrible. A flood? What's a flood, Noah would have said. You see, Noah hadn't been there when God created the cosmos. If so, he would have seen this massive firmament surrounding the earth. The waters from which God separated the dry land. So sending a flood for God was the easiest thing in the world. But Noah hadn't seen it. He was obliged just to take God at his word. I mean, are you like that and am I like that? You may have heard this expression, and it was on bumper stickers. I don't see it as much in the UK, and God bless you. Americans are obsessed with putting little stickers on the back of their cars. Now, I know, I'm sure it happens sometime here, but Americans are obsessed. And some of them put stickers all over their car. I mean, a writing advertisement from everything from peanuts to baseball to politics. I mean, just all over. One of them goes like this, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. That sounds very pious, of course, but it should say, if they're going to put it on there, God said it, that settles it. It wasn't settled because Noah believed the word. It was settled because God spoke the word. Noah knew that faith in God's word is greater evidence than his own bodily senses. He was more certain that it would rain, that there would be a flood, than he was that a mist came up from the earth, which he could see. Noah was God's favorite because he took God at his word. Do we take God at his word when he says something? Okay, that's true, so the argument is over. Consequently, Noah obeyed God to the letter. That's the meaning of he did all that the Lord commanded him in verse 22 of chapter 6. And if you'll read that passage more, you'll see that happens Again and again, God says something, and he says, and Noah obeyed. Or Noah did what God commanded. And God told him to do something, and the scripture says, and Noah obeyed. He did that. God commanded, Noah obeyed. The emphasis here is on the comprehensiveness of his obedience. Faith is obedience, and obedience issues in faith, and vice versa, in a cycle. 
If we believe in God, if we take God at his word, we obey and we obey fully. We can't be cafeteria Christians. We don't choose what to obey and what not to obey. Noah didn't say, well, I believe God and I'll build an ark for me and my family. Well, what about this business of constructing a boat for hundreds of animals? How are they going to get here? Am I going to have to go and round them up? What a silly idea. God doesn't expect me to go to such lengths. Or why does it have to be this huge boat, 300 by 50 by 30 cubits? God is so arbitrary. I will do my own engineering calculations and decide how big this boat should be. Noah? No. Noah had faith in God, knew God knew better than he did, so Noah obeyed to the letter. Noah didn't see himself as wiser or more advanced or more progressive than God. Well, you know, I know the Bible condemns homosexuality, but the trajectory of the Bible, when you just sort of extrapolate it out, is that God just loves everyone and wants just everyone, no matter what their sexual orientation, to be married. No, that wasn't the way that Noah thought. He said, God said it. It's right. I will obey it. As a result, Noah was God's favorite. God destroyed the entire world except for Noah and his family. That's how much he favored Noah. That's how much he favored Noah. Noah rubbed shoulders with God. Noah took God at his word. And Noah obeyed God to the letter. That's why God favored Noah. So, <clears throat> we ask, why then, or how then, have Christians understood this favor? Christians haven't... All, haven't entirely been comfortable with that particular truth that I've articulated, particularly those in our sector of the church, our Reformation sector of the church. Our tradition was launched as a result of questions like these. Whom does God favor? And how? And why? You see, in the medieval era, the Roman Catholic Church taught salvation by both faith and works. God sent his son to die on the cross to save us, yes. And if we exercise faith in him and perform good works, he'll justify us, that is, he will declare us righteous on the final day. And these good works were all wrapped up in the sacramental system of the church. Baptismal regeneration, uh, the mass, indulgences, purgatory, the church itself, in effect, replaced Jesus Christ. Well, the great, <coughs> excuse me, the great rediscovery of Martin Luther is that salvation is not by what we can do, but by what Jesus Christ has done on the cross and from the empty tomb. By simple faith, we trust in him, and his righteousness, his righteousness becomes ours. The Reformation was really a recovery of Pauline, Paul's theology. We're saved by grace, through faith, not of ourselves, or our good works, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2. See, the Reformation resituated the gospel at the center of the church. This means it resituated salvation by Christ alone at the center of the church. And this was and is entirely correct. In practice, however, this has meant that every recovery of the great cause of the Reformation has also included a deep suspicion of good works 
and obedience. By the way, this is just what the Roman Catholics at the time predicted would happen. It's not what should happen. Reformation teaching doesn't entail suspicion of good works and obedience. The great reformer John Calvin made that point abundantly clear. For him, the central truth of soteriology, that is salvation doctrine, is union with incorporation into Jesus Christ. When we become one with Jesus Christ by faith, we don't only get as a benefit justification, we also get sanctification. In other words, God saves us apart from works, but to good works. And if we do not perform good works, we only prove that we have not been justified. But that, you see, is a relatively technical point for many people. And for them, the Reformation truth reduces largely to this. I'm saved by grace, apart from works, and I dare not stress good works. If I do, I'll undermine the work of the cross, and I cannot do that. Therefore, I'm not going to talk about or be terribly interested in good works because good works really are dangerous. So when they come to the Bible's teachings, like those about Noah, and there are many others in the Bible, by the way, and not just the book of James, they get uncomfortable. <clears throat> They're often at pains to make sure we don't understand Moses to be teaching that Noah gained God's favor by good works. But I'd like to submit to you this morning, that is precisely what Moses is teaching. Precisely. He's teaching that Noah was God's favorite because he loved and obeyed God. The book of Hebrews teaches the same thing. His faith was an act of obedience, and his faith led to further obedience. The implication of the alternative is just as true. If Noah had not believed God, if Noah had not walked with God, if Noah had not obeyed God, he would have perished with the rest of the world. I would say also the teaching of Genesis 6 is not that Noah and his family were just as depraved as the rest of the world, but God sovereignly selected Noah and protected him from the flood. Noah, in spite of the fact that your imagination, the imagination of your heart is so evil and so depraved, and you are so utterly godless and hate my truth so much, despite that, I'm going to select you to salvation. There's nothing whatever in either Genesis or Hebrews to give us that idea. That Noah found favor with God does not mean that Noah was this horrid, abject sinner, but in the abundance of God's love, he saved him anyway by grace alone. If that's what happened, Moses missed a golden opportunity to tell us that in the book of Genesis. Now, don't make any mistake. Nobody is sinless. Were it not for God's grace, Noah could not have walked with God, could not have trusted God, could not have obeyed God. Noah was saved the same way everybody else in the history of the world has been saved by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ and his bodily resurrection. The pre-Christian saints from the Old Testament looking forward in prospect to what Christ would do. And of course those like us, the Christian saints, looking back on him and trusting in him in retrospect. We're saved by the blood and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But... That's not the point that Moses is making in the book of Genesis. That's not the point. It's also not the point that the writer of Hebrews is making, nor is it the point that James is making, 
nor is it the point that many other biblical writers make, including Paul sometimes. Although all of them believed in salvation by grace through faith. Their point is that God favors those who love and obey him, and he disfavors those who do not love and do not obey him. Now, I want to say this point is taught so clearly and so frequently in the Bible, you have to work very hard to miss it. But some people do work hard and they do miss it. Whenever there's an emphasis on obedience and holiness and good works, they'll always say, well, well, yes, but we've got to be very, very careful because we're saved by grace through faith. Yes, everybody knows that or should know that. Unfortunately, they do not live lives of obedience and holiness under the power of the Holy Spirit. Moses isn't teaching us about justification or sanctification. He's telling why Noah was God's favorite. How we can be God's favorites too by implication. He's telling us why God judged almost the entire world and what we can do to avoid God's judgment. He's teaching that obedient faith, about obedient faith, and the obedience that results from faith and how they lead to being God's favorite. Finally then, what does this favoritism, this favoritism mean for us today? It means that if we want to be God's favorites... And should we not want this? You say, well, Andrew, I'm sorry, that sounds very proud and haughty. I don't want to be God's favorite. I just, that would set me above other people, and I just want to be stoop-shouldered and humble. That's what my, an old friend of mine used to call pious gush. We should desire to be one of God's favorites. We should desire to please God, and it pleases God when we trust in Him and love Him and walk with Him and obey Him. It pleases God. We become His favorites. So you should long for being one of God's favorites. We should talk to God every day and throughout the day. We should delight in Him. In him. We should delight in what He delights. We should hate what he hates. Do you delight in what God delights? He delights in righteousness. He delights in caring for the weak and the poor. He delights in justice, which is the same thing essentially as righteousness. He delights in those things. He delights in the church. His own son poured out his own blood. He delights in the church. He delights in a broken and a contrite spirit the word of God said. God likes those things. He looks down and he says, oh, I like that very much. Do we hate what God hates? He hates hypocrisy. He hates unholiness and unrighteousness. So, well, I just want to be careful. I don't want to be too judgmental. Well, what you're really saying is you don't want to hate what God hates, and that doesn't please God. Do we really want to please God? Whenever God takes a side... We should run over to God's side. The pastor elders here preach the word, and the word of God is very clear. And when we learn that, we should say, God, by your grace, give me the strength. I'm going to immediately run there. I'm immediately going to do that. That pleases God. You don't say, well, I wish someone would write a paper on that. Maybe let's just have a long discussion and a disquisition about that. You don't do that. You obey what the word of God says. Following Noah, we should have faith in God. 
Take him at his word. Read his word. Trust in his word. Bank on his promises. There's so many. Since he says that if we seek his kingdom and righteousness first, he'll take care of our material needs, we shouldn't worry one bit about our provision. Did you ever think about that promise that Jesus gave there in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6? It's a powerful realization when it comes to you. You never, ever have to be anxious about God providing with, for you. If you seek and have a passion for his righteousness, his rightness, and his kingdom. So make that the goal of your life, that more than anything else, you seek his rightness, his kingdom, that is his reign in the earth. If you have a white-hot love for rightness and righteousness and his kingdom, you never even have to think about provision. God provides for people who love righteousness and his kingdom. He says that as our loving father, he'll give us good things if we just ask in faith. So we should be asking God for things all the time. See, I don't know, Andrew, that sounds kind of proud. That sounds self-centered. Wrong. God is a heavenly father, and he longs to do good things for his children. Parents, do you long to do good things for your children? So I have a question. Are you as good a parent as God is? No. So then you should ask him. Like Noah, we should obey God without question. He says we should train our children in the faith in Ephesians 6. When he says it, we should obey. He says we should love one another enough to lay down our lives, if necessary, for one another. Well, when he says that, we should obey. He says we should live and stand publicly and not just privately for righteousness. Well, we should obey. We're not called to adjust the Bible to the world. We're called to adjust the world to the Bible. Now, will we fail? Yes, we're sinners. I want to quote again Matthew Henry. I love this particular statement. Speaking of Noah, it says, He was perfect, not with a sinless perfection, but with a perfection of sincerity. Isn't that beautiful? You see, for some people, the only two options of pleasing God are sinless perfection or utterly displeasing Him with abject depravity. But that's false. God demands a loving, loyal, submissive heart. And when we sin, we confess our sin to Him and move ahead in great victory. In other words, God loves Here's an expression for you, repentant obedience. Repentant or contrite obedience. That obedience from the heart is what God demands, not sinless perfection. Now ours is an era, and I'm almost done, ours is an era of uh, a grace revival. Don't misinterpret what I'm saying today, so listen very carefully. Christians and churches speak constantly of the grace of God. Revel in the grace of God depicted in Jesus Christ, and use the grace of God as an explanation for almost everything that happens in their Christian life. This revival of an emphasis on grace is a stupendous blessing. However, I must say, much of what is called grace today is not the grace of the Bible. Genuine grace teaches... That denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present world. That's from Titus 2, verse 12. In your New Testament reading, Steve, are you reading through right through the Bible? I believe, if I'm not mistaken, maybe Titus 2 will be read next Sunday. 
When you get to that verse, remember, oh, that really big, loud, obnoxious American had preached about that verse last Sunday. See what it says about the grace of God. Those are the words of the Apostle Paul, the great preacher of justification by alone, apart, alone, apart from works. A professed grace that leads to ungodliness and worldly lusts is not grace. Even conservative churches are filled with unrepentant pride and prayerlessness and fornication and divisiveness and covetousness and rebellion and unbelief and self-centeredness. Our single young adults routinely sleep around and nobody in church leadership says anything or does anything. And whenever a godly man or woman, a godly elder, let us say, points out some uh, ungodliness, they repeat, they retreat to glorying in the grace of God and thanking God that they're not Pharisees and legalists. Well, I would rather be doing this and revel in the grace of God than be an old wicked Pharisee. So let me go sleep with whomever I want to do all sorts of things to my body that I want to do and not attend church because I can have church by myself down in the coffee shop. And they imply that what God truly loves is when his people spend all their time sinning and then cover their sins with an appeal to the grace of God. And this is supposed to be God-glorifying. Well... I hope that you will read Romans chapter 3, verse 8 one day. The Apostle Paul castigates this notion in the strongest terms. He calls down damnation or condemnation on those who teach this. Grace that doesn't lead to a walk with God and trusting God and obeying God isn't grace. It's a disgrace. And that's why these people, when they come to Genesis 6 and what God said about Noah, chafe so much and don't quite understand. You know, Christians sometimes exhort with well-intentioned humility. You know, we shouldn't act like we're better than anybody else in the world. We shouldn't act like that. After all, we're all saved by grace. Christians are not better than anybody else. When I hear that, I kind of shake my head and wonder. They're well-meaning. So Christians aren't better than anybody else? Well, if we're not better than unbelievers, what's salvation by grace all about? Surely not just eternal bliss. It'd be a tragedy indeed if heaven were populated by unrepentant, depraved sinners. That wouldn't be heaven. That would be hell. Heaven's reserved for those who have been saved by grace through faith alone in the blood and resurrection of Jesus and who therefore have been cleansed of sin and live as obedient, persevering sons and daughters. So today, among the din of religious apostasy and depravity, a misguided piety might inspire this attitude. Well, I'm saved by the blood of Jesus and totally by grace. And therefore, I better be careful about stressing any moral difference between me and the world around me. After all, it's only grace that separates me from dope addicts and prostitutes and corporate thieves and so on. But you see, that only, only grace is a massive only. It's a grace that transforms a rebel into an obedient child. It's a grace that situates us on the path of righteousness. It's a grace that causes us to, causes us to love what God loves and hate what God hates. It's a grace that causes us to persevere in righteousness. 
It's a grace that causes us, us to press the Lordship of Jesus Christ in all areas of life. Yes, we're saved entirely by the grace of God. And that grace of God creates obedient, God-fearing, faith-filled people. This, in prospect, is precisely the grace in which Noah lived. Hebrews chapter 1-9 says this, that God anointed Jesus Christ, the Father anointed Jesus Christ because he loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. I have a question for us today. It's very sobering. Do we love righteousness and hate lawlessness? Oh, that rejoiced the Father's heart because Jesus, the Word says, loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. And if we say, well, we want to be a good Christian, therefore we should not hate anything. You, know, you sort of love rattlesnakes and you know, love the devil. I just kind of love everything. My friend, you can't be a good Christian if you don't hate some things. We live in times not entirely unlike Noah's. We're surrounded by terrorism and violence and sexual perversion and rebellion and betrayal and avarice and misguided hatred. It's not easy to obey God in such godless surroundings. It's not easy, but it's not impossible either. One of the great self-serving myths of our time is that Christians cannot live godly lives in ungodly times. Noah alone is sufficient to disprove that supposition. So I urge you today to take Noah as an example. God's pledge never again to destroy the earth with a flood. But he will judge the West, our cultures, England, America, if we don't repent and turn to his son and his ways. Let us, like Noah, be heralds of righteousness in the world. Isn't that good language from Second Peter 2? Heralds, sometimes translated preacher. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He didn't only live righteously. He preached righteousness and righteously. Do you actually use your mouth to declare righteousness? You say, no, I just want people to look at my life. No, that's often not enough. Paul says, don't have fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness in the book of Ephesians, but rather, who can finish it? Don't have fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but he says, do you know? Expose them. Reprove them. Calvin has a great section on that. Look at his commentary. He says, we think we have done enough if we simply avoid evil. But when you see actual evil being done and you're around people where you can speak into their lives and you do not expose them, he said, you're not obeying the word of God. You must do it. You say, well, well, people will think I'm offensive. Well, yeah, they thought Noah was offensive too. You see, our problem is that we do not take righteousness with sufficient seriousness enough. One day, God will sweep away all of this evil surrounding us. Until then, I would urge you, imitate Noah, walk with God, trust God, obey God. If you do, you will be God's favorite. Let us pray. Thank you, Father, for this very sobering, in some cases, shattering truth from your word. 
Lord, forgive me and forgive us for our laxity toward unrighteousness, for our not desiring to walk with you, to rub shoulders with you, to have great faith in your word. Oh, God, I beg of you, bless this congregation. Thank you for their leaders. Keep these men strong in the faith and close to you and shepherds of your flock. Lord, please bless this flock. Bless these precious little lambs here. Thank you, oh God, that they're with us in this assembly and aren't shuttled off somewhere else. But their little hearts and minds are exposed to the law of God, even though they might not understand it, oh God. Nonetheless, your word is working on them, powerful, sharper than any double-bladed sword. Bless us in the time to follow and the questions and answers. And Lord, please use us to extend your cause and kingdom in the earth. And Father, we will give you all the honor and praise and glory for this. In your name we pray. Amen.